and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Liam Clifford. And I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Muller. And today we have a very special guest for you. We're, we are with Janira Jimenez Padilla, um, a PhD candidate in the biology department here at UWO. Janira, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I, we have, we've got an action-packed one today, so let's delve right into it. You want to just start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at Western. Oh, <laughs> that, that, that's an interesting one. I'm not your typical uh, grad student. I'm from Mexico, where I was uh, lined up to be a doctor, and I did two years of med school, then came to Canada, and they told me that my transcripts were not <laughs> transferable. So, okay, let's try biology. And the idea was I was going to be a pre-med student and I was going to become a doctor no matter what. Um, and then by the time I was in my third year of biology, something was missing and I didn't want to be a doctor anymore. Now, I'm from a very small town where if you're really good at science, you either become a vet or a doctor, and there's not much else, and there's no information about a career in science. So in my third year, a professor that all of a sudden noticed I was not answering questions, you know, maybe in the front, uh, in the classroom with my hand up, uh, is the one that introduced me to the idea of doing a career in science. Uh, at that moment, I switched to do an honors thesis to give it a try. And I fell in love with the work in the lab. I was doing immunology. I was just had an experience with research and lab and coming with questions and trying to answer them. And after that, I got hooked. I was not sure what I was going to do after that. I still applied to med school. I got an interview that I canceled and somehow accidentally found the lab I'm in looking for getting bored and clicking on images and finding some really cool bug that I didn't know what it was. So I click on it and took me to the Sinclair lab where I did a master's and I'm currently doing a PhD. So I've been around for a while. <laughs> yeah, wow. It's, it sounds like uh, you've had quite the journey kind of coming in thinking you were going to do medical school and then discovering you really had a passion for biology. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your, your research and what you're studying right now? Uh, yeah, I'm, as I said, what brought me here was a weird bug on a website, right? So I do love insects. And the Sinclair lab works in various insects. Uh, my insect is Drosophila. So the little fruit flies that you don't like in your kitchen, I love them. There, I, they're just so adorable to me. And larvae, just crazy little maggots, I think they're gorgeous. So there's many reasons why I love them. First of all, you know, like you can have a lot of them in small spaces and they reproduce fairly fast. But why I like them is because, you know, this whole idea of the good microbes that live in your intestines and it keeps you healthy and it can help with how fast you develop. It can help with uh, how you respond to infections and diseases. Uh, it can even affect behavior in some animals. But most of what we know is with the studies that have been done with bacteria. Now, if you take a little step back and think about all the different microbes that could be living in, in your intestines, 
we have fungi, we have archaea, we have proteins, we have viruses, if you consider those things alive too. They're microbes, they're, they, they are there. So I took a little step back, and instead of uh, trying to study more bacteria, I switched to fungi. Now, and Drosophila, like the flies, helped me a whole bunch with that, because if you go out there and catch them, you will recover a bunch of bacteria from their guts, but you will also recover a bunch of yeast. And these are just your, your typical yeast. Like one of the uh, ingredients of the flight food I use is uh, your baker's yeast, right? To make rice. Um, so I kind of stopped and decided that that was the way I wanted to study uh, the flies and the yeast that lives inside them. And we know that they need it. As I told you, they kind of go hand in hand out there. And if I go catch them, I will recover it. But we don't know what they're doing as a microbe that could be alive and living inside the intestines of the flies. So my idea is that it's not the same as me giving you an apple to eat, right? Like you eat the apple, you get all your, the nutrients from that apple, and you go on your merry way. From my point of view, every time those flies are eating yeast, the thing is alive, right? So what are the chances that it's just being passive going through and getting digested? What are the chances that they're doing something? They're still alive, they're still metabolizing. They might be interacting with those bacteria that we know more about. So my research focus in, what are they doing? And how are they doing it? Very interesting indeed. Um, it combines a lot of elements that I'm super unfamiliar with. So you must pardon my naive questions. Um, when we're talking about the fruit fly here, um, is this more of a practical choice for experimentation or is this actually um, you know, a good anatomical simulation for human beings or something to that effect? That's an excellent question because we tend to think about the fruit fly as a great model for many anatomical and disease human related. And sorry, and for the longest part with time, we thought that perhaps Drosophila could be a good model to study how these microbes are affecting the host. Uh, that is still true to some extent. Like with other animals, we are not looking at what yeasts are doing, and we all have them, right? So it kind of sheds a little light into the, well, maybe the yeast I have inside me are doing something else that we're not paying attention to. But um, the longer you look at it, fruit flies, well, they can give you that general idea of microbes affecting the host it cannot give you a clean view or it's not a great model if you want to think about it into what microbes are doing for other animals, including humans. The reason for that is that they're fairly simple, right? Like we have, like if you go and look at the human microbiome project, there's this giant lists of bacteria that live inside humans. There's a similar, similar studies for cows or pigs and Flies are fairly simple. So it gives you an idea of generalized, but it's practical because it's simple and easy to work with. And one of the other things, like as might not be a great model to, to, to expand to other animals, it allows you to work with animals that you can make completely free of microbes. 
and then introduced microbes as you want to test. So it's, it's a great tool, but it's limited to this is the work on a fly in a live, uh, lab environment, right? So I think we can learn a whole bunch from it, but we have to always keep it in frame of what it actually is. How long does a fruit, fruit fly live? Like, what is the lifespan of a, a fruit fly? You know what? I should know this. I can tell you that my flies go from egg to adults at the temperature I keep them uh, in 11 days. I can tell you that I tried to do a longevity experiment and because I tried to keep my flies either free of microbes or just with the microbe I want them. Well, it turns out that there's microbes everywhere and flies get contaminated really easily. I had to shut it down after two months and the flies were still going. So I don't really know. <laughs> Uh, so Jahira, you kind of touched on this, but could you tell us a little bit more about why fruit flies? So I would love to say this was my idea, right? But it's not. It's an, an animal, a lab animal that you can keep easily in a lab. And in it's an animal that has been used for this type of studies with bacteria a whole bunch. Um, part of the reason is that a lot of the like, work has already been done. In, like I told you earlier, well, we know a whole bunch about the, what the microbes are doing from bacteria. But even in these flies, the species of Gs that are usually living inside the flies have already been identified. So I came in in a lab that like they had the flies. And then if I just searched the literature, I could find the species that you usually find in this type of fly, right? Like all the species of bacteria, all the species of yeast. So I'm not doing a whole bunch of that guessing game. I already know that they have the, that they have the yeast. I know what types of yeast they probably have. And Another, I think I already touched on this a little bit, but one of the important things of the studies with um, fruit flies for microbiome experiments is that the inside of the egg is a sterile. So there's no microbes usually living inside of the egg. So if you take those eggs and surface sterilize them, in my case, I use ethanol. Other people use a combination of ethanol and then bleach. The idea is to kill all the microbes that may be in the surface of that egg. And then you grow them on, on food that has already been sterilized. You can actually end up with adults, larvae adults, all the life stages that are completely free of microbes. Doing that in any other animals, it's very difficult for many reasons, right? Like one is many animals won't do well if you remove all the microbes, uh, but flies are other than a bit, take a bit longer to develop. Um, they're perfectly fine adults. So that gives me a comparison group, right? So if I'm interested to see in one, what species of microbe is doing what, I can compare those that grew completely free of microbes with those that grew with only one microbe or maybe two microbes, right? And it gives me a very easy comparison. So that's one of the reasons why we use uh, Drosophila in these type of studies. Very interesting indeed. And I, th I think um, your little statement on why fruit flies um, demonstrates why we need context before we start these studies. Um, and as a history student, I can say that I know that better than most. Um, and continuing on with 
context, I think it's important, um, you know, for me, but for everyone listening to understand what constitutes a good microbe and what constitutes a bad one. And is there any sort of generic classification that, you know, puts one in one group or in the other group? That's an excellent question because we have this idea and well, there, we know a lot more about the good microbes, right? And they sell them to you in yogurts and in pills and stuff like that. But if you don't think a specific about that, and if you're in the middle of a pandemic, you think microbes and you think, oh, shit. Uh, but there's so many microbes. They're living inside. They're living outside animals. They're everywhere. Many of them, those microbes are kind of neutral. They do nothing. They just sit there and do their microbe happy lives, right? Some of those microbes are going to be pathogenic and they can cause disease. Um, and then you have microbes that can be beneficial. And then because by living inside you or on you are doing something that helps you stay, stay healthy. And that's what we try to sell you when you buy yogurt, right? Uh, with life colonies. But then certain lines will start blurring where you have opportunistic pathogens, right? Where they were neutral, but something happened uh, to the animal and all of a sudden they replicated a whole bunch and now there's a lot of them and now they're causing a problem and causing disease. So that's not longer a neutral mark microbe, now it's a pathogen. Um, the same thing can happen with the good microbes. Once they, they go out of whack, right? Like all of a sudden you have too much of something that used to be good and it's not longer good. So it's a, it's a fine balance with everything that's happening. You cannot think about these microbes as just being good, bad, or, or, or just kind of like uh, individual microbes. It's a whole community. And what they're doing as a whole community, it's kind of like what keeps you going as a healthy person or as a healthy fly in my studies. And what is an opportunistic pathogen? Can you just go back and explain that a little bit for us? So an opportunistic, um, and I might not be using the super correct term according to microbiologists. So you can have opportunistics once uh, all of a the sudden they can move in. So they could have been, so if we just focus on microbes that could live inside intestines, let's say. Uh, they might've been there being completely neutral and doing nothing. And then you got sick and you took antibiotics, right? That kill a whole bunch of other bacteria. So all of a sudden you have this space for that microbe that was just kind of sitting there to start growing. And by sheer numbers, what they were doing that was not affecting you before can all of a sudden affect you. Um, so they're just kind of take the opportunity of the new open space that is there and start causing like disease in that case or something that doesn't quite agree with your physiology. That's what I would call an opportunistic. Um, can be because you maybe didn't take antibiotics, but all of a sudden your diet changed and just kind of shifted what's happening inside you. And some of those microbes, once they start multiplying, well, they're not that great. I don't know if that explains it. No, thank you. That was very helpful. 
Yeah, and uh, that was, uh, you know, that was certainly going to be one of my questions is to really try to understand um, what allows a microbe to sort of shift in one extreme or the other. And I, I think that I think that is, you know, it's quite fascinating to see how uh, how fluid the, the whole scenario is. So, but um, we've been building up the microbes because we want to hear about what you've observed so far. So um, if you can, in as much detail as possible, we'd like to hear what you've observed. Uh, yeah, so I started just, uh, so when I started my master's, I had this giant list of things I wanted to test and then reality hit, right? You cannot do everything. So I do two basic tests. One of them is how the microbes I'm using affect the development time of the fly. Um, what I realized with those is that if you remove all the microbes from a fly, they develop a lot slower just take longer as larvae before they actually start pupating or turn into flies. It just takes longer. Uh, and I was interested in that. So I started giving my, my flies just like one species of yeast. And oops, all of a sudden, it develops as fast as the normal flies. So one microbe, one little yeast, recovered the whole effect, right? All of a sudden, the flies were developing and being healthy. And that happened with all the species of yeast that I tested. Okay, so yeasts are good for the flies. They eat it, them, and they grow fast. And there was no difference if I tested different species of yeast. And then uh, the lab where I'm working at, they love throwing insects in cold and see what happens. So they test a lot of cold tolerance. And me not wanting to completely be left out of the whole cold tolerance stuff, I started testing how my flies um, reacted once you put them to cold stress. So insects do this really cool thing, uh, well, cool to us. If you cool them down, it gets to a point when they just become paralyzed. Their little muscles just completely paralyze and they fall and they cannot longer stand. And funny enough, we just call that chill coma, you know, <laughs> coma induced by cold. And if you give them some time, they eventually shake it off and keep going with your happy lives. So I put my flies at zero degrees Celsius for eight hours, take them out of there. And the first time I tried this, I thought they were dead, you know, but then you observe them and five minutes, like, sorry, uh, 15 or so minutes later, they start kind of shaking and eventually they flip and they start flying and they're happy flies. So we use that as a measure for cold tolerance, how fast they can recover from being in that chill coma. Um, I started testing with my different species of yeast. It turns out that if I take all their microbes away, they take longer to recover from cold stress. If I started giving them one species of yeast at the time, that's just a species specific. Some yeast actually help the flies, the flies recover a lot faster and others do nothing. And some are not so great and take longer as well. So that kind of starts, started giving me an idea that perhaps what we're seeing, it's as I was saying at the beginning of this talk, right? It's not just eating the, 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 the yeast or stuff. It's actually the fact that it's just a species specific uh, kind of gives me the idea that these uh, microbes are doing something else. No. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know why, what they're providing and why they are helping the flies uh, with cold tolerance better than others. 
that's uh, for future studies <laughs> that I'm trying to get at. So cold tolerance sounds interesting to me, not something I've heard about. Could you tell us a little bit about how you store the flies during that cold tolerance? Um, so the lab works with insects that can actually tolerate ice formation inside them, which I thought was super cool. So my flies don't do that. And they're kind of like the wimpy ones in the lab. I still think they're adorable and I don't care. Uh, I actually put them in the small tubes, like waterproof, so I don't drown them. And then I basically dump them in a, a slurry of ice and water. And that's because ice and water stay at zero degrees Celsius in a very stable way, better than many of the fancy equipment we have. So as you ask, storaging them to keep them that cold, I just keep them underwater in waterproof little tubes. And everything pretty much slows down and they're pretty happy after. Well, I don't know, I imagine <laughs> they're alive. <laughs> I can imagine that, uh, you know, this will become a slogan of stereotypical Canada. It gets so cold here that we need to condition our flies to brace for the winter uh, winter conditions because we unfortunately cannot provide them with a Canada goose jacket. Um, so instead, we give them the microbes they need. So um, that is uh, that that is very interesting. So um, I know you I know you had said a little bit about um, future research, um, because this all sounds um, quite fascinating, and there's a lot to go off to. So where do you envision this going? Well, before I leave, <laughs> I still have a few tricks of my sleeve where I know that something is happening. So with development time, I know that one microbe is enough to help the flies recall, like develop as fast as normal flies. I know with cold tolerance that some Gs, but not others, can help the fly do better. Um, I think you can go and test a whole bunch of other things that could be changing. Like my, my list at the beginning of this whole, um, uh, you know, career. But now that I found that something is happening, I actually want to know why. So I beginning to dip my toes into mechanisms, like, right? And then working with Drosophila, Yay, there's a bunch of tools that I can use, right? Um, so right now I'm growing some flies that have mutations about, uh, in different you know, molecular pathways. And I'm testing to see if I, by luck, I can find something that, that is affecting them to try to get at the mechanisms. Um, I have an other couple uh, genetic tools <laughs> on my sleeve. Uh, that is going to hopefully allow me to find areas of their genome that could be associated with, with what I'm seeing, like these changes. So I'm trying to get at basically, hopefully genes, hopefully pathways that are necessary for, for the genes to affect the fly. Um, and I think, uh, of course, I my idea is that, of course, I'm going to find a mechanism, but that, I mean, animals are quite complex. So I'm sure I'm just going to leave my PhD with a bunch of hypotheses that maybe in the future, somebody or even me could test, right? And working with Drosophila is excellent because if I found, let's say, an area of the genome or even a gene that I think is perhaps responsible for what I'm seeing, I can look for mutant flies 
to, to, to see if I can remove the effects I'm seeing that will kind of shed some light into mechanisms. So I'm moving towards mechanisms. Um, hopefully I find something. I have one more year to go. So <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> That is excellent. Um, and as we um, culminate this this interview, um, you know, I think I think it's really excited to have research to look forward to, uh, especially in the era of a global pandemic. Um, and it's so difficult to talk about. We could have an entire episode about talking about how COVID has impacted your research, of course. But um, as a courtesy, we always like extending the question: um, Has your research been significantly affected? <laughs> yes, uh, I just said I have one more year to go, but in reality, I should have graduated in April. <laughs> so I, I'm still here and I still have some time to go. Uh, when the labs started shutting down, I was first one of the central personnel, but I had to shut down all my experiments that were going at that time. That set me back quite a bit. Um, but I was because I was only allowed to come in and keep them alive. But then the lab has many other insects that needed to be taken care of. And I'm the only person that works with flies. So eventually we removed my link from the list to kind of keep all the levels of the social personnel to the minimum. And I took my flies home. So I was living with my flies at home. I completely took one of the drawers in my fridge to store all my fly food. And, and I kept them going. So I kept them going and I didn't lose any of my flies, but in the lab, usually I have each population of fly, like I have about 50 or 60 of those little lines because they come from different places, they have a mutation, whatever. So I have kind of 50 of those little colonies. Usually I keep them in hundreds of cages. And when I brought them home, I reduced everything to three little tubes of flies that I brought home with me. So when, when finally the labs opened and I was able to return, growing flies sounded really easy when I started. Growing flies from bringing them to almost zero numbers has taken months. On top of that, my, like I usually, um, we, there's usually about 10 to 11 undergraduate students that are either work study or volunteer students that help me keep track of those all, the, all those flies and they were not allowed in. So the work that 12 people, including me, uh, usually did got turned into one person, me, doing maintenance and doing experiments. So it has been really, really, really slow. Um, so I'm, I'm interested, you said you took the flies home. I just wanna kind of back up because that, that sounds like a chore in and of itself. So how did you transport them? I know you said at home, you stored them in tubes and then you had some fly food in your fridge that, can you just kind of give us a little bit more of a picture of what that was like? Cause that sounds like a lot of creativity on the, on the fly as it were. <laughs> well done, well done. That was a good one, Elizabeth. Oh, thanks Liam, I had to, I had to throw one pun in. <laughs> so um, we have like, unfortunately I don't have one to show you right now, I usually do, but the flies cages are basically like a fat test tube, right? About, I don't know, 10 centimeters tall, you know, um, 2.5 in the diameter. So they're, they're like little thick test tubes. Uh, 
and with food at the bottom and the flies just kind of go on top they eat the food they lay the eggs in the food and they just kind of keep with their happy lives so those tubes in a normal day in the lab we will i will have hundreds of those tubes in a little box to bring them home i basically sacrifice all the tubes in one box except three and i brought three with me for each single one of my little colonies which it's somewhere between 50 and 60 colonies. So in reality, I just brought like the equivalent of two shoe boxes full of little tubes with flies home. So they didn't take that much space. I just had to reduce everything and brought them home. And, and then those tubes with the fresh food were prepared like previously and just brought home because I didn't want to cook fly food at home. But um, so what you can fit of those tubes in a drawer lasted me four or five months. So it's uh, it sounds tricky, but it's not as bad because, well, one of the um, good things about working with flies is that they take little space if you want to keep them alive. Very good. Well, um, Janeiro, we, we do wish you all the best and your flies as well um, with the completion of your PhD. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was fun. It's been a pleasure. And now it's time to fly. There we go. <laughs> and I will, uh, I will end this, uh, this podcast episode um, on that lovely pun by our own Elizabeth. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Liam Clifford, and my co-host was Elizabeth Moeller. We've been speaking with Janira Jimenez-Padilla, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frey. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.